Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The word of the Lord. Okay, thank you. Let's take a second and pray and uh, ask God to help us, and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Father, we ask for you to come and work in our hearts now through this small part of Scripture. We ask that you would move us by your Holy Spirit to be able to understand and see you rightly, to see you for who you really are, for how you have revealed yourself to us, and not just to see you as sort of an intellectual exercise, but to see you and have that vision of who you are impact us and change us in the way it impacted and changed Isaiah. Lord, uh, we exist for your glory and to know you. And so we pray that you would further the knowledge of yourself in our hearts and in our heads this morning. No matter where we're coming from spiritually or emotionally or psychologically this morning, we pray for you to make it clear to us that you love us and that even though you are infinitely holy, You have made a way through Jesus for us to be with you, not just now, but on into eternity. So help us to rejoice in that this morning and to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Anne Lamott is a pretty well-known Christian author, and she has a famous quote where she says this, you can be sure you have created God in your image when he hates all the same people that you do. You can be sure that you've created God in your image when he hates all the same people that you do. You know, today in our world, especially in America and Western culture, still most people would say that they believe in God. Uh, But especially in the Western world, I think that that quote from Anne Lamott rings true. What people mean, even by the word God, varies widely. Perhaps even in this room here this morning. I would guess that most of you here today believe in God. Uh, Some of you probably aren't Christians. Some of you undoubtedly are Christians. Some of you might not be sure. Some of you have been impacted in what you think God is like based on your own life story or family of origin or on something you've read or something you saw in the media, who knows when. Uh, But I think it's important for all of us, no matter our background, to realize and to understand about ourselves here at the outset of the sermon this morning and this new series that it's possible for each one of us to be self-deceived regarding our views of what God is really like. It's possible that our view of God does not match perfectly what God is like in reality. Even those of us who grew up in, you know, conservative evangelical churches for most of our lives can be self-deceived in how we think about God. And so that's the question I want us to think about in these next few weeks together. Um, Is our thinking in line with the truth about who God really is? And how can we know 
Are we making God in our image or do we see him for who he really is? That's what we're going to think about this morning and in the coming weeks together. As I mentioned a second ago, we're going to start this new series today called Knowing God. It's going to go through the summer and um, it's a topical series. So because so many of us are in and out in the summer, it's not a series that builds on itself. We're going to look at one attribute of God after another from various passages of scripture in the coming months. And I want to just say here at the outset that one of the major premises of the Christian faith is that God, the real God, the living God, has revealed himself to us. He reveals himself generally in the things that have been made and in human conscience, and he reveals himself, according to Christianity, in a special way through the written word of God, the Bible, or the ancient scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And God's revelation of himself is both reliable and trustworthy. So, all that to say, we don't have to discover what God is really like in any way other than by examining together what he has told us about himself, how he has revealed himself to be. And so that's what we're going to do in the coming weeks. Why is this a worthwhile and important thing for us to think about? J.I. Packer is a famous theologian, and he wrote a great book a number of decades ago called Knowing God. And to answer that question, why this is an important subject, I want to read a pretty extended quote from Packer, and I've got it up here on the screen, so follow along with me. Here's what Packer writes. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. And so today, we will begin this idea, this series of looking at what it's like, what God is like, what it means to know God as he truly is by looking at this great story from the life of this man, Isaiah, who was an 8th century BC Israeli prophet. He lived, you know, almost 3,000 years ago now. And we're going to use this story to think together about the holiness, the holiness of God. And so with that background, here's the main idea for the morning. The holiness of God means that he is majestically set apart from all that is not God, okay? The holiness of God means that he is majestically set apart from all that is not God. Four points. First, I want to show you that God is set above us in holiness. Second, God is set apart from us in holiness. Third, God is set against us in holiness. And fourth, God is set after us. In holiness. I worked really hard on that outline, so write it down. I hope you like it. First, God is set above us in holiness. That's the first idea, and we see it there in verse 1 of Isaiah 6. Now, this story that Tim read for us is about the calling and commissioning of Isaiah to be a prophet who speaks in the name of God to the people of Israel 2,800 years ago. Now, he lived in a really turbulent time. Israel, the northern kingdom where he lived, was in his lifetime, just some years after this event takes place, going to be 
taken over by the Assyrian army, a a powerful neighboring nation of the time. And the book of Isaiah makes it clear that this is a theological judgment of God against the people of Israel, against his chosen nation for their rejection of him as God, for their rebellion and their sin. And Isaiah is the prophet whom God calls to tell the people of Israel about their need to repent, to turn from idolatry to the living God. And here we see his call. And the remarkable thing about Isaiah's call to ministry is that the story is really not about Isaiah. I wonder if you noticed that in the reading. It's not about Isaiah at all, really. It's ultimately about God. So we see that he walks in here to the ancient temple, Isaiah does, in the year that King Uzziah died, and God gives him a vision. He sees, we read, the Lord sitting upon the throne. He sees this vision of God, and the vision presents God in a remarkable way. Look at what the verse 1 says. God is sitting on a throne. He is high. He is lifted up. That is, the throne room is high. It's, it's regal. It's very kingly. He's on a throne and the robe, the train of his robe fills the entire throne room, the entire temple. And around God are these two angels that are called seraphim. And the seraphim are presented as attendants upon God, the king. They are there to serve him, to wait on him. They exist to, to do his bidding. Now, this is an incredible vision that Isaiah is given by the Lord. And the main idea, especially at the outset of the vision, is that Isaiah is seeing God here in his holiness. And the idea is that the holiness of God means that God is set above us in every conceivable way. Listen, God is God and nothing else is God. And everything that is not God is made by and at every moment dependent upon the God who is God. God is the majestic and the utterly sovereign king. God has all life and glory and goodness and blessedness in and of himself. God is all sufficient. He has no need of anything. He is the foundation of all of existence. Of him and through him and to him are all things. Isaiah sees God here in his essence as he really is. The holy God has sovereign dominion over everything. And as the Psalms tell us, he does whatever he pleases. There is nothing that the real God does not know. There is nothing that he does not see. There is nothing that to him is uncertain. Every creature, angels, men, and beasts owe him at all times their worship, service, and obedience. If this is a true representation of what God is like, the king sitting on his throne, high and exalted, if that's true, and the Bible very clearly presents that as true here and elsewhere, can I just lovingly say something to you? God is not your buddy. God is not your pal. He's not your chum. God is not just the man upstairs. And he's most definitely not your boyfriend. God is the king. And God deserves your absolute worship and obedience at all times. 
Whenever anyone sees a manifestation of God's glory, like Isaiah does here, anywhere in Scripture, they tremble. They don't want to cuddle God and sing kumbaya with him. Can you get a taste of the sovereign holiness of God? I I put it that strongly because I believe that that's how the Bible represents him. He is the king. And a man like Isaiah falls to his knees, quaking in fear when he sees just for a moment a glimpse of what he's really like. It would do us well, I think, to think of God in similar terms, to see him in his majesty, to see him in his holiness. God's holiness means that he is set above us. Secondly, the holiness of God means that he is set apart from us. He's set above us. We see that in verse 1. And then I want you to notice in verse 2 what the seraphim, these two angels, are doing. By the way, this is the only place in the whole Bible that seraphim are mentioned, and they're mentioned twice in this text. They're angels, and we read in verse 2 that they had six wings. And with two wings, these two angels cover their face, and with two more, they cover their feet. And I assume that with the other two wings, they are, you know, flying, right, hovering off the ground. And the question, of course, is why? Why are the angels doing this? And we find the answer in verse 3. One of the angels calls to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the word holy there is repeated three times as a matter of emphasis. In the language in which the Old Testament is written, the Hebrew language, there's no exclamation point. There's no italics. There's no underline or bold, you know, things you can do on your Mac like this. So in order to emphasize a point, what they would do is repeat. And just so you know, the only attribute, attribute of God that is repeated three times in the Bible anywhere is the attribute of God's holiness. He is called holy, holy, holy. We never are told that God is love, 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 that he's mercy, 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 that he's justice, justice, justice. Of course, he is all of those things. But the attribute of God that receives the greatest emphasis is that of his holiness. Three times holy he is. It's the only attribute of God that is emphasized to that degree. And so you see then that the angels are covering their faces and their feet because of that, because the real God is so immensely holy. That is, he is set apart from all that is not God in purity and in goodness. Just think about this with me for a second, okay? These seraphim, these two angels, are amazing creatures. I mean, any time in the Bible someone sees an angel, much less, a God, much less God, when they see an angel, what do they do? They always are told by the angel, first thing, do not be afraid. I mean, oftentimes we see people wanting to worship the angels, and the angels say, don't worship me, I'm not God, right? So angels are amazing. Angels are infinitely you know, more glorious than we are. They are stunning creatures in their beauty. You know, one of these seraphim could wipe out an entire human army. They are immensely powerful. They are radiant. They are glorious. And the seraphim are covering their faces before God. The seraphim, these amazing creatures, are covering their feet with their wings in the presence of the Holy One. That is how holy God is. Not even these amazing angels can stand to have an uncovered face in his presence. So very clearly, the idea of holiness, and maybe even the primary idea of holiness, is that the real God is infinitely pure. 
I want you to understand that. The real God is set apart from all evil and uncleanliness and corruption and wickedness. If you've read through the Bible before um, and read through the Old Testament, you might have been confused at various points in the Old Testament, especially when you read about like the sacrificial system and the temple and all these Old Testament sort of rituals. And really, just as a, as a piece of application here or illustration for a second, all of that existed in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, as, as a living illustration for the people of God to understand God's supreme holiness. The reason that God gave commands to sacrifice, you know, only animals without blemish, or the, the reason only the priests could go into God's presence representing the people, and sometimes only at certain times of year. And the reason the people of God had to do these distinct things that separated them from other nations and from other peoples, those aren't just random arbitrary commandments. Those are all, they're all living signposts. They're like living billboards advertising again and again, over and over, that God is distinct. God is holy. God is other. God is set apart. It was to remind the people of God of how holy God is, how pure he is. That's also the reason for the smoke there in verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shake when God speaks to Isaiah and the house is filled with smoke. We see smoke in other parts of the Bible. Like when God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 19 and 20, and Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He goes up, and he's there for a while, and then he comes down, and we read that Mount Sinai is wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended upon it, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And God instructs Moses to set limits and boundaries around the mountain unless the people come too close and die. That's how holy God is. That's the idea. That's how set apart, how distinctly pure God is in his essence. Now, there's a lot of things we can say as a result of that, but let me just briefly, before we move on, say this. Um, Among many other consequences of the holiness of God, one important one is this. There is an unchanging and objective moral standard in the universe. To put it very simply, there is a right and there is a wrong. And this unchanging, objective standard is not a social construct, nor is it the decision of powerful powerful political or religious leaders, nor is it the deepest and most heartfelt feelings within any given individual. The standard flows rather, it flows from and is based on the holiness of God. All that is right is right because it accords with who God is. And all that is wrong is wrong because it is out of accord with who God is. So to put that another way, ethics is grounded in and flows out of theology. The reason that right things are right and wrong things are wrong isn't just because you have this sort of natural instinct. You do have that natural instinct, but even that flows out of and is grounded in God's character, God's holiness, God's purity. So God is holy in that he is set above us. He is sovereign. He is set apart from us. He is pure. He is incorruptible. And then thirdly, we see that God is set against us in holiness. Look at Isaiah's response to his vision, verse 5. 
I mean, this is his immediate reaction. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Why do I know this? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now that word woe, that's not like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure woe. <laughs> that's not server woe. That's woe, W-O-E. Woe is another word for a curse. So for example, woe is the opposite of a blessing. So in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy, you know, blessed are they. And then on the contrary, Jesus say in Matthew 33 or 23, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. You are hypocrites. So when someone says, woe, W-O-E, they're saying, you know, they're, they're invoking a curse. They're invoking the wrath and anger of a just and righteous and holy God. And so it's really significant that Isaiah says, I am in that position. Woe is me. He says, I am finished. I am lost. The word there, lost, means undone. Literally, it can be disintegrated. Isaiah is saying, he is coming apart at the seams when he senses God's holiness and then looks at his own life. What's going on here? You got it. You got to hear this, okay? Isaiah has had a true encounter with the real God. That's what's happening. Any true encounter with the real God results in quaking terror before his holiness. This happens because we see the true comparison, you see. We see the measure by which we will be measured. The standard by which we will be judged. We see relative to God's holiness, how unholy we are. Relative to God's purity, how impure we are. Relative to God's incorruptible nature, how corrupt all of our natures are. Isaiah is a, I mean, this guy is like a spiritual superstar. He's top of the list of awesome Old Testament prophets. I mean, this is a righteous man. And he's saying, woe is me. I deserve cursing just at a glimpse of the real God. When we are confronted with God and his holiness, we just know intuitively that we cannot stand before him. We cannot be in his presence at all. When uh, I was in seminary and Marianne and I were engaged, she moved up to live in the same city as me during our engagement. And before we got married, um, she lived with a family that attended a, a church in the area and this is a wonderful, wonderful family. And uh, the, the woman that Marianne lived with for three or four months, her name was Karen, and she had, um, she had some physical problems. And one of the issues that she faced physically was that any, you've probably met some folks like this or heard of this before, any fragrance, anything that she smelled, like perfume or cologne or anything, like really had a bad impact on her physically. Like it literally made her ill. It made her sick. And so one of the rules of the house was, you know, no cologne. No fragrances, fragrances, no perfume. They couldn't even cook like strong food because certain senses would set her off and make her feel very sick. And so, you know, I'm engaged to Marianne. I, I want to woo her. And, you know, I'm turning around, coming down the block. And if she smells my cologne, like when I'm in the car, it's going to go bad. So I, I won my wife without having to smell good. That's the point. Um, I, I couldn't put on cologne. So uh, she, she just couldn't stand it. She couldn't stand the smell of it. It would literally make her sick. And that's, that's how God is. 
when it comes to anything that is not infinitely pure and holy like he is. He, he can't be around it. Nothing like that can stand in his presence. It's contradictory to his very character. And so here's what you got to get, friends. Here's what each one of us needs to hear. Here's what I need to hear as the scripture teaches us and as the spirit works on us. Listen, none of us can know what we are really like deep down until we see ourselves in the context of the awesome holiness of God. None of you can know what you are really like until you see yourself in the context of God's own holy character. And let me tell you, that is, yeah, that is the worst news you can ever possibly hear. Welcome to Christ Church. Worst news ever. That a holy God is set against you. Why is that really bad news? Why is it really bad news that you cannot and will not ever measure up to God? You cannot be in his presence. You trying to measure up to God's holiness is like a spider web trying to catch a falling rock. It's just, it's just not going to happen. That's bad news because you are dependent upon this God and being in his presence and love for every single thing you have and ever will have now and forever. Without God, you disintegrate. Without God, you are in hell. To exist apart from God is hell. To be apart from, his is, to, from him is it's, it's just unimaginably horrible. It's better to not exist. And Isaiah realized how devastating his situation was. He needs this God. He needs this God's presence. He needs this God's life. And yet he cannot stand before him because he is too unclean. If you ever want to understand Christianity, if you ever want to grow as a follower of Jesus, you've got to understand that. That has to press itself on our hearts more and more and more. Do we really believe and understand that the reality of our situation apart from Jesus is that the one true God who made all things and rules all things is opposed to you? That's what Isaiah sees. That's what Isaiah says. Woe is me. God is set against us in his holiness. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Fourth, God is set after us in holiness. We see finally in verse 6 of chapter 6, okay, Isaiah, he's seen his own shortcomings, right? He's had this terrifying and amazing moment of being radically exposed before God in every way. And we read next that one of the seraphim at God's command approaches Isaiah and places a burning coal from the fire of the altar on his lips. And then in verse 7, the angel says, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Okay, what's happening here? Listen, here's what's happening. God sees Isaiah as he really is, okay? God sees Isaiah in his rebellious and impure condition. God knows Isaiah through and through. God has innumerable pieces of evidence that would condemn Isaiah to be banished from God's presence. All that's true. But instead, God approaches Isaiah with the purpose of cleansing him. God makes him pure. God atones for his sin. God, we read, takes away his guilt. And it's important to see that God alone 
takes it away. What does Isaiah do here? Isaiah doesn't do anything except stand there and realize how unclean he is, right? And then he receives passively the grace of God's unhesitating and unstoppable pursuit of him in mercy. Get this. God is so holy that his holiness overflows into the people that he has made so that by his overwhelming and powerful grace, he makes us holy too. God brings unworthy ones like us into his holy presence. That's what Isaiah experiences here. And it changes him forever. It equips him, you see, to minister the gospel for the rest of his life. One more thing I want to show you on this point. You you see, all of our situations, this is why the Bible is so great. It tells us these amazing stories. And in a sense, the Bible isn't just a window into an ancient world, as I've said before. It's a mirror into our own world a mirror into our own hearts. All of our situations, all of our conditions are exactly like Isaiah's was so many thousands of years ago. We are all unable on our own to stand before a holy God. And therefore, we're unable to have life, to have blessedness, to have peace, to flourish. The judge is set against us in holiness when we are left on our own. Bottom line, we need atonement. We need God to take away our guilt. So how does he do that? This is great. This is another amazing thing about the Bible. How does he do that? We see how the story all comes together here. God atones for us and takes away our guilt by bearing our guilt himself, you see. And he does that in the death of Jesus. That's confirmed for us um, in, later in the Bible. In John chapter 12, this is amazing. John 12, verse 41 during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus, or John, quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 in John 40. And then in John 41, here's what he writes. Isaiah said these things, exactly the verses we're talking about. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, who is the his there? Whose glory did Isaiah see? Who is Isaiah speaking of? Jesus' glory. Listen, the Lord in Isaiah's vision is Jesus. Isaiah saw the bad news. He saw the worst possible news, that he is desperately in need of atonement because of sin before a holy God. But then he also saw the good news, the best possible news, the gospel that Jesus makes atonement for us. Jesus heals us. Jesus bridges the uncrossable gap between our impurity and his purity, between our unholiness and his holiness. We are not abandoned to exile out of God's presence. No, God's holiness sets him after us in grace. Jesus saves unholy people by taking our unholiness on himself. That's what's happening at the cross. Jesus atones for our guilt. He atones, he pays for our impurity and takes it all away from us. The Bible says he removes it as far as the east is from the west. So now, through Jesus, through trusting in Jesus' atoning, guilt-bearing death for sinners, through that, by faith, we are welcome 
into the very throne room of God that Isaiah himself saw. We are welcome to come there without fear and without trembling because we are no longer under under his condemnation and under his holiness. Rather, we are in his family as sons and daughters. You see, through Jesus, God is holy. He's holy to us as a judge, but he's also holy for us as a father. And the only way that can ever be the case is when someone else takes care of our guilt and enables us to come back into God's presence. You see, that's what Christianity is. That's what Christianity says, that God has done all that is necessary for that to happen. We're welcome then into the holy presence of God through the ministry of Jesus Christ for us and to us. So God's holiness is an amazing and important thing to understand. It's important because it helps us to see God for who he really is, and also it helps us to see ourselves rightly. And then it also, finally, helps us to see how God has done all that is necessary to, as it were, bridge that gap and bring us back home, bring us before his presence so that we might live a life of blessing, a life of joy, a life of flourishing, a life of hope, not just in this life, but especially in the life that is to come. Let me conclude by reading from another part of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 12. The whole book of Hebrews in the New Testament really is about how Jesus fulfills all of these Old Testament promises and laws and how Jesus brings us back into God's presence. And I was reading through that just in my personal devotion time this week and came across this section that I think is amazing. Here the author of Hebrews is comparing and contrasting really what it's like to go before God's presence apart from Jesus and then what it's like to be in God's presence with Jesus. So let me just close by reading this. Listen to this. This is incredible. Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He is speaking to you now. He invites you back to him through Christ. Do not refuse. Believe. Let's pray.